All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hey, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording today uh, from my big, comfy armchair in my bedroom in New York City. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm, I'm joined by that guy. You might have just heard him giggle. The one, the only, the sui generis. <laughs> Michael, look it up. Michael <laughs> Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. And uh, you might sound a little different to our listeners today because yeah. <laughs> while you are on your phone, uh, I'm on my microphone and we, we both have something in common. Why, uh, yeah. why that's happening. Yeah, we're, we're both in COVID exile. <laughs> my... Aunt and uncle, whose property I live on, um, both have COVID. Mm. Uh, and so I'm in the city. And you, your wife has COVID. Yes. And you are I'm a, in your studio. You're hiding out in your studio. Yeah. So I, I was able to uh, quarantine or stay away from my wife in my studio with all my gear. Whereas you had to uh, right. abandon your gear. And, and by the way, my wife is okay, and your aunt and uncle are doing yeah. are doing okay, right? With their COVID. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yep. I wouldn't have left if, if yes. they weren't, frankly. Um, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> I know. Just to be clear, you didn't I'm abandon. Not a callous right. monster, right? Uh, no, they're doing they're doing all right. And and once I knew they were, you know, really okay. I decided because I neither you nor I have had it yet. And I, I know. I decided to come into the city. Yes. Um, but I, my my recording equipment is all in the room that my uncle is quarantining in. So I, I just jumped in the car, threw peanut in, <laughs> and um, <laughs> tossed her in, and drove down yonder. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So you're recording me over the phone. This is our yes. It's an experiment. But um, <laughs> anyway, we're, we're both fine. Our loved ones are fine. And we have a great episode Absolutely. today with the process artist, uh, Megan Riepenhoff, um, who has a new book out called Ice with Radius. It's magnificent. Yes. I really could not recommend it uh, strongly enough. And it was so fun to talk to Megan. I've been a big fan of her work for a long time. She's our first process artist that we've had mm -hmm. on the show. And it was really fun to talk to someone who's making abstractions, working with, you know, really chemistry in the paper. Yeah. And, well, anyway, what did you think? Well, I was a, I was a science stock photographer for quite a few years. And so uh, mm -hmm. I'll just uh, leave it at this. You have a fantastic conversation about Prussian blue. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. An important color in, in Megan's arsenal. Oh, yeah. and and in Megan's work, which is very collaborative with the environment. So, I mean, it was it yeah. was really good. Uh, seriously, it was very really good. And also, Megan is not only the first process artist, but maybe the the largest large scale you know, work artist that we've had on. And between that and, of course, your love of books and talking about, you know, translating that large work to books was a, a really great part of the conversation as well. Yeah, that was really interesting. And 
and how she did. Uh, well, I won't get into it because you'll hear her <laughs> talk about it. But it, it is it is really fascinating. And she also talks about failure mm-hmm. and how she channels that. And yeah, you said something to me before we started recording that's more eloquent than what I'm thinking. <laughs> but what did you say? Well, it about- was it was the idea of failure and rejection and how that's. Uh, fuel and evidence for knowing that you're on this new direction and that you're, you know, you're out yeah, there and you're, you're doing in it. a new direction. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was really well, good. It's, it's a really, it's a re- yeah, it's a really good conversation and I'm sure we have process artists to listen and, and mm-hmm. so this one's for you <laughs> and for everyone else, because of course, Megan is just extremely rigorous artist and her process is, fascinating yeah and, and really i thought it was it was energizing the conversation yeah yeah absolutely all right well let's get to it if you don't mind michael please take it away uh absolutely while we're still healthy <laughs> we're going yeah. to uh, get this episode up <laughs> so here yes. is here is your conversation with megan Riepenhoff. Megan Rippenhoff, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's great to have you on. We've been trying to um, nail you down, sounds a little violent, but trying to uh, <laughs> nail down a time with you. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Rippenhoff is actually Jesus. Um, so <laughs> All right, see, that already went sideways. Love it, but this trying- is, the edit is perfect, yeah. <laughs> It's not like the audience doesn't know about my horrible jokes. Um, <laughs> been trying to get you on the show for a while, so so happy to be talking with you. Thanks, um, great to be here. Someone who's known of your work for so long, just loving it for so long. So yeah, thank you. So as we do, we start every show with the artist's origins and journey, so Uh, If you don't mind, please tell us all about yourself. Sure. So I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and you will hear me say things like y'all, and you'll hear my Southern accent come out occasionally. I (laughs) was always interested in art. Uh, There was never a time in life that art wasn't probably my favorite thing to engage in. As a child, I was really interested in drawing and ballet. And those those two things held my focus throughout adolescence. And I went into college at the University of Georgia thinking that I would study drawing. And my parents were totally freaked out by that and encouraged me <laughs> to have a double major. So I was pursuing a drawing and English degree simultaneously. I had taken one photography class in high school. It was a black and white course. And I had this really cool teacher named Peggy Harris, who I remember so well. And I thought that photography was really enthralling. I was excited by Mm -hmm. it, but I just kept returning to drawing. So it kind of felt like Mm -hmm. a little, yeah, a little introduction, but it didn't, it didn't grab me yet. And then at the University of Georgia, I took a course from actually Mark Steinmetz and I remember I was making these like really, really bad black and white photographs and I had a critique with him and he said, you know, these pictures look like bad commercial photography. They look like an unskilled. Yeah. And 
he was right. And that's the thing is he was so right. And he delivered mm-hmm. it skillfully. It's not like he came down with yeah. like a brutal yeah. comment um, yeah. in defense of Mark. <laughs> but the, the critique was exactly what I needed to hear. And it kind of mm-hmm. cleared aside my notions of how I thought photographs should look. It just mm-hmm. like it just wiped away the expectations of of trying to look like images that I was seeing in magazines. And next thing I knew, I was at my advisor's office saying, I think I want to switch from drawing to photography. And I remember so well, the advisor at UGA said, oh, we're going to lose another one to the basement because that's where the dark rooms are. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. I mean, I went down there and I spent the next three years you know, late nights, weekends in in the darkroom. And so my first love and obsession was with black and white photography, but we had a color processor there. And the color course that I took just totally changed everything in my artistic direction for me. I loved the way specifically Fuji products could reproduce Mm -hmm. blues and greens. I mean, do you remember like early Fuji film and paper? Yeah, Yeah. those, those saturated tones in that blue and green spectrum just like roped me in. And um, I have an uncle who had been in advertising. And I remember he saw me shooting with Kodak and he was like, I need you to, to try Fuji and just learn the difference. So I, I learned I could like navigate reds and oranges with Kodak and like blues and greens with Fuji. And oh, that's great. Right. That's awesome. So cool that he showed me that. So I spent the rest of my college career pretty much fixated on large and medium format color photography. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, I was in the process of trying to move to the West Coast. And uh, I took off for Humboldt State University as a early 20-something and did my last year of college out in the Redwoods. And wow, yeah, it was it was an abrupt change. But honestly, the first time I went to that landscape, I knew I was going to move there. Yeah, it's it's dramatic and those yeah. trees. I mean, those trees are like no, no, <laughs> California. It's an amazing place. Yeah, and like <laughs> thousands of years bringing people there. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, you know, thousands of years in these redwoods, and you can witness that kind of large time scale in the landscape there. So, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once I got to California, I I stayed on the West Coast and. A little cut back to my early childhood when I was nine, my now best friend, still best friend, and I made a pact that when we were older, we would move to San Francisco together. And so when I was applying to graduate school, I applied to SFAI, San Francisco Art Institute, rest in peace. And um, turned out she got a job interview the same weekend I had an interview at SFAI. And we met up there and, and we just never looked back. We just... State. That's that's fantastic. That <laughs> yeah. is so fantastic. Yeah, we got an apartment in Oakland, and I went to SFAI, and again, just like hung out with the color processor all the time. <laughs> um, and grad school was a fantastic time for me. I think I made some of the worst work of my life, which is probably what grad school is for. And yeah. um, wound up going to a residency at the Banff Center for the Arts in Canada. 
couple mm-hmm. years after grad school. You must have had great professors at SFAI. Oh my there. gosh, great professors. Linda Connor, Hank Wessel, I had Reagan Louie, Doug Hall, Tony Labatt, just a whole slew of yeah. John Priola. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Paul Koss, like all these guys in the new genres department. So I went to the BAMP Center and I was still making sort of four by five and six by seven pictures of place, really pictures of light in place and a lot of portraiture still. And I just had this urge, like I need to flip my practice upside down. I don't know where it's going, but it can't stay here. And I started making really, really bad sculptures. I mean, like I was going to the dollar store and getting balloons and inflating them and tying them to strings and pretending like they were planets and doing these performances of like (laughs) teaching a planet to orbit and stuff and um, like making constellations with the freckles on my body. And I came to a moment where I was like, I got to get all this stuff out of my studio. It's like clogging up the vibe in here. And I took it all down to my dark room. And like, next thing I knew I was making photograms with those objects. And it totally the beginning. Yeah. Yep. That's the beginning. That's the origin story. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's it's something that carries through for me with my practice today and how I got to this work is how important the mistakes are, the things that we view as mm-hmm. the as the failures. Those are absolutely, for me, the fuel and the evidence of when I'm pushing myself into a new and interesting place in the studio. I always just think of I mean, the audience, just, you know, there's certain things I repeat over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I just imagine the listener is groaning when I do it. I'm about to do it again. But I just think of those things as like sketching. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm not opposed to the word failure, by the way. Mm-hmm. I I think failing is important. It's part of life. It's fine. You know, I, I used to be a filmmaker and my the first film I ever made, I literally couldn't tell you what it's, what it's about. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I wrote it. Okay, I didn't just direct, I actually wrote and directed it, and I don't know what it's about. So, you know, that was a fail. But it's also, it it is a sketch, like, because it gets you to the next thing, right? So, Mm -hmm. they're essential. These things are so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember some teacher in my graduate program, and I forget who it was right now, but they said that in terms of your, so there's the work, there's the art make and the art making, and then there's the career, you know, trying to get the work out there. Mm-hmm. And their recommendation for pursuing getting the work seen was that you should have like 100 rejection letters by the end of every year. So you might have like one successful letter mm-hmm. by the end of yep. the year. <laughs> um, yep. And that was both terrifying and kind of exhilarating because it sort of lets you know that the focus needs to stay on the artwork and and the rest of it is just maybe coming along and maybe not. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I mean, I could take this conversation down a sort of more nuts and bolts direction. I will not, but I will just quickly say, you know, as an art dealer, same goes for me Mm. and and every art dealer, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's very hard to sell art and you can't think about, all those no's. You, mm-hmm. ju- you just move on. You mm-hmm. just, you know, we're sort of just doing the same thing. So let's tell folks, you know, what you're doing. So how do you describe the type of artist that you are? Because you're not 
a photographer in the traditional sense. So how do you, you know, you've met someone at a party and they, they ask you, you know, what do you do? What, what, do you, what do you say to that? So I typically respond by saying, I'm an artist who works collaboratively with the environment. And then inevitably, mm-hmm. the person at the party goes, what does that mean? And I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I work with antiquated photographic processes. And I work with precipitation or standing water on the surface of the planet and ice. And I, I work with the elements in the environment that, that leave direct impact into the photographic materials. So that can feel a little bit opaque. And then I, I oftentimes tell people, have you seen those sun print kits that like five-year-olds use? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and typically people have seen those in a museum store or something. And, mm-hmm. and then I, I unpack that and I say, you know, I, I had never seen anybody work with that material in, in the ways that I work with it. And I was really influenced by Anna Atkins being such a badass, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a woman at her time working in the field. Granted, she was probably would have identified as an amateur botanist and not an artist, but nonetheless, she made very interesting art using cyanotype and materials that she collected from the shoreline. And so Atkins was taking these specimen and making beautiful photograms with them. And I wanted to nod to her. And so I decided to take the process to the shoreline and have the shoreline be both the subject matter and the process and the way that I was working with the materials. So it's all rooted in this history of this woman from the 1840s who just quite literally changed scientific illustration and changed the way we thought about photography and made the first photo book. So how exactly do you work? Yeah, so I coat paper in my studio. And then typically it goes into like garbage bags and boxes and layers of kind of DIY light safe materials. And then I go out to a selected landscape. And at that point, I begin submerging the paper in waves or engaging it in rain or freezing weather. And so there's a very tactile experience where the paper is actually touching the things that are imaging on it, touching the waves, touching the sand, the wind is blowing things across it. And then the paper goes through this engagement with my mediation for Mm -hmm. anywhere from, I would say the shortest exposure I could get away with is 30 minutes. And oftentimes it's more like days. And so I'm out Mm -hmm. there moving the paper or adjusting it or absorbing a puddle that I know will never dry and sort of creating situations where the paper can also maintain structural integrity. Because you can imagine like a big challenge is just how to keep the damn paper together once it's saturated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the sometimes epic feat of just trying to get the paper back into my studio. (laughs) So I have a van with racks in the back that I will pull the paper out of the landscape and put it on those racks or... I use boards to support the paper, bringing it back in, and then it goes through a drying and curing process. Yeah, just for folks who 
haven't seen your work. You, not all, but many of your pieces are incredibly large. Yes. So you're, when <laughs> people, you know, this sort of um, description of wrestling with the paper, mm -hmm. we're not talking about a 8 by 10, 16, 20, 20, 24, 34. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you're often working with really large um, sheets of paper. That's um, right. A, yes. a typical size uh, yes. is Go like... Ahead. 42 by 88, 42 by 60. Mm -hmm. But I think of those as like the small to medium works, which always cracks my galleries up. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, 88 inches long is not small. <laughs> but yeah, the biggest pieces are like 12 feet tall, 20 feet wide. And, and so, uh, you know, you can imagine taking paper like that out into the wilds, you're engaging with things you don't anticipate, you know, a big gust of wind comes and, and then the next say 10 minutes are spent like collecting the paper and assessing where it tore. And is it an interesting tear? Or is it a, a tear that just rendered the piece kind of compositionally mute, let's say. And just to sort of further this image of you now as a sort of superhero, um, <laughs> you, you also have made pieces that are I don't know if you've done ones bigger than this but I know you've you've made pieces with individual pieces of paper that number into the 60s that mm -hmm. then become one piece mm -hmm. that's right that you've made at at one time just to be really clear you're not like going out different times and making these prints you've you've been wrestling with 60 something pieces of photographic, coded photographic paper in the elements at once, which is nuts. It's nuts. Um, um, yeah. The scientific term, nuts. <laughs> so um, I, I described that early on. The, the language that I found that most aptly described that experience is chaos with a dash of control. Like, that's how mm -hmm. it feels when I do it. And uh, interestingly, my partner told me that that's what it's like to live with me. So that might just be <laughs> my vibe. <laughs> all right. It's all coming together now. Right. I get it. <laughs> but it, it does take really an appreciation for surrender and a, mm -hmm. a willingness to acknowledge that what is to come is not within my control. Could you do work? Could you be happy making work that wasn't as physical? Or is this physicality essential to your happiness with the process? You know, younger artists, Megan, would have said that it, it wasn't essential. But I mean, the last like 15, 20 years of my practice indicate physicality is important. Um, mm -hmm. I I did a series of photograms where I spoke and sang and otherwise created breath into sand that was on photographic paper in a color dark room. And my breath mm -hmm. moved the sand into formations. And then I exposed that. All the photograms I made that from my series like Instar and uh, Dark Matter, some of this older work of mine, they they required a, a heavy physical engagement. You know, I was literally bringing backpacks full of kind of dollar store detritus into the dark room and like kind of blind sculpting while the exposure was happening. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to the Headland Center for the Arts, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, 
I didn't have access to the dark room there in the same way, but what carried through from my practice was physicality and manipulating photographic materials to try to see images that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And that's when I wound up down on the beach with this Anna Atkins inspiration. I, I was thinking about physicality also in terms of what it moves through me while I'm making. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm excited when I'm on the beach. I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm trying to make interesting pictures. But also, as we've discussed, things are potentially quite chaotic and really out of control. And I think that there is a way that the physical movement gives some sort of outlet for all of the emotions and sort of psychical states that come in that vulnerable space of making art. Yeah, I mean, I've seen photographs of you making work and it's you know you could be a a you know a scientist mm -hmm. you could be a you know a, a greenpeace activist mm -hmm. you know <laughs> i mean there's something so in the pictures i've seen you're often being pummeled mm -hmm. by waves you know storms and i mean it's it doesn't look like you know, when you think about photographs of photographers, so, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're going to do a lecture and the picture that's used for the publicity for the lecture is a shot of them out in the field, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's like them next to a tripod and everything's very peaceful, whatever. And, you know, the pictures of you, you, you know, you look like a, like a crazy scientist with no boundaries or, <laughs> you know, so it's so much. Someone who's sort of risking, you know, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and so it just seems, you know, and I'm projecting here because I'm someone who loves the elements, mm. but it just seems like there must be something addictive to some extent in the adrenaline of that experience. And then you don't just have the experience that you have, you know, a memory of, you actually come back with some spectacular piece of artwork. So I sometimes. Can imagine that. <laughs> sometimes, right. No, and look, I am sure there's a lot of misses. And, and let me just sort of segue actually to a question I have after my little speech. You, well, I'm going to quote you here. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started making this work, I went to conservators and cyanotype experts to ask them what we might see in 100 years. The answer is we don't fully know. I'm really excited by this uncertainty because much like life itself, change occurs in ways we cannot predict. And I think that was from an interview you did that was on Strange Fire Collective's website. And you, cool. you, you went yeah. on to say, I was also thinking about how Stephen Shore defines an image as an object that has its own life in the world to be saved in a shoebox or in a museum. At the crux of that idea, is the understanding that photographs change according to context, viewership, time, etc. I wanted to make work that changes too, that pushes back against this idea of the static image. I also wanted to push back against the idea of the archival image, something that seems to imply that photography is exempt from the very nature of life itself, which is change and ultimately death. People often ask me what the work's final state is after I've told them that it changes. The final state is change. So the first question I have is, how much are these photographs that you make going to change? I mean, are they going to change at the rate that 
gelatin silver prints change or at the rate that old C prints have changed or something totally different? Or do you have no idea? And yeah, how do you think about that beyond what I just read? Yeah. So this work came at a time when I was studying impermanence. And I was thinking about a resistance to change that I think is a very natural state for humans to experience. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the difficulty of impermanence, right? Losing people, things changing Mm -hmm. in uncomfortable ways, but also impermanence can be a massive relief. Sometimes change brings about just what you needed. And sometimes when Mm -hmm. you're in difficulty, impermanence can be like the best gift you could have possibly asked for, because the thing that has been so difficult will eventually shift. It may not go away, but it is inevitable that things will shift and change. And simultaneously, as I was sort of in this investigation, there were really fascinating programs going on at like SFMOMA and other museums around the country. And they were trying to deal with the question of what's happening with sea prints. And different artists were approaching the color shifts that they were seeing in their prints in different ways. So some artists were requiring that the museum pull the original print out of the collection, destroy it, and then they would replace it with an inkjet print. Others were supplementing side by side. So here's the original print. Here's an inkjet. And others were saying, no, the print is the thing. The print is the object. And uh, Mm -hmm. come what may, this is the thing that I made. And I was fascinated by these conversations. And I was getting to like, listen in to what conservators and curators were thinking about them. And I just found that a lot of conversations were based around like archival properties and to me, that positioned the work in such a human time frame. And I wanted to think about work in the context of geologic time, and also to think about our existence in the context of geologic time, and how we're just like a fraction of a moment in this huge yeah. time scale. So the pictures themselves that I started making in response to this, this idea of impermanence, they are always collaborating with their environment. So when when the question is put to me, like, what will they look like in five years or 10 years? Or how will they change? The answer is, it depends on the conditions in which they're living. So for example, a huge mm-hmm. grid that I have in the collection at SFMOMA, they are storing that in cold storage. It's in a specific pH situation. Their interest is in preserving the work as close to the state that it was in at the time that they acquired it. In contrast Mm -hmm. to that, I've had collectors who say, what gets me about this work? What drew me in is the change. And I'm going to put this thing in a south-facing window with no glazing, and I'm going to watch it just shift and and change over the years. (laughs) So there's a huge range of what we can expect to see. Those collectors who have a lot of money. Yeah, right? Yeah. I just spent $100,000 on a Megan Rippenhoff, and I'm going to sit here and watch it disappear. Watch it change. So the the news from conservators is that it, it won't disappear. The chemistry is creating a Prussian blue pigment, which is sensitive to UV light. And 
I learned from Mike Ware, who made the new cyanotype formula, that Prussian blue pigment, even when it's fully fixed and washed, which all happens in one step with cyanotype, it still has the capacity to lighten and darken over time, and it vacillates. Mm -hmm. And so conservators and um, other artists who work with cyanotype, we all kind of joke that like cyanotypes need their beauty rest. They can be out for a long time getting certain amounts of UV light, and what starts to happen is the Prussian blue pigment starts to reduce to Prussian white. So you see it lightening. And then when you mm -hmm. put that print in a drawer for a month or two, the, the density of the blue actually replenishes. So, well, I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. It's super fascinating. So it's really alive. Yeah, it's really alive, and it's really responding to the environment. And it's one of the reasons that I picked this specific material was because I knew that that could happen with it. Whereas sea prints, you know, once it goes, it just keeps going a certain direction. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cyanotypes kind of they As kind of MoMA is. <laughs> Um, painfully aware. Yes, yeah. totally. <laughs> God, that's really, I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That's that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, so I sent a bunch of my pictures to this really interesting, cool guy that I met through the internet in Australia, a conservator named Bruce. And I sent him a bunch of different things. I sent him like a cyanotype properly done, a cyanotype done the way Megan Riepenhoff does it, a silver gelatin, an inkjet, and then a print that I'm making with mushroom ink, which is new work. And I asked him to, to test their relative light fastness. And he was floored. He sent me back a chart for the prints done my way. And he was like, do you know that your prints can lighten and darken? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, wow. yeah. That's one of my favorite things about them. <laughs> um, and, and That's so cool. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the question of control, which is so live in my work, like, what am I controlling? What is the environment controlling? Where do those edges bump up against each other? Mm -hmm. That continues in whoever's hands are holding the cyanotype. Like it doesn't stop mm -hmm, with me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's really that's that's a, actually a really beautiful concept. Mm -hmm. Um now that I've got you warmed up, let me ask a tough question. I'm here for it. Okay. I knew you would be. <laughs> <laughs> How do you reconcile I mean, look, this is a question that you know, I could ask a, a lot of artists. It's um how do you reconcile the beauty of your images? Your images are, are really breathtakingly beautiful. Thank you. Um, with the subject matter that is, you know, or the, the context that's, that's often about environmental destruction. Mm -hmm. And please, in, in answering that, you know, feel free to talk a little bit about some projects where that is, is specific and clear, whether it's the, you know, Great Salt Lake or, the, you know, Kodak super fun sites or whatever. Yeah, so one of my hopes with my work, and I tread lightly when I say this because um, I'm not interested in dictating what the audience experience should be, but right. a hope that I have is that the work is a catalyst for connection. The, the physicality, the literal specks of sand, tears and punctures that occur from rowdy waves all of these ways that the environment like quite literally imprints into the work. I hope that that is a way for a viewer to initiate some sort of connection with the landscape, with water, with mm -hmm. the environment around mm -hmm. 
So the beauty of it is kind of like a, a, a call to look more closely and more slowly. It's like an entree, like this exists in this space. And also to talk about Kodak, this came from a situation that's really loaded. And, you know, we can think about environmental impact in a lot of ways, but certainly one important way is that we're all engaged with systems nearly involuntarily that cause detrimental impact on our environment. Mm -hmm. Photography is super interesting. It has been used to preserve huge swaths of land in our country and across the world. So in that way, it's been a tool for preserving the environment. And also, Kodak made this big hell of a mess in the Northeast with four super fun mm -hmm. sites between New York and New Jersey. So when I speak about our relationship to the environment, I am always trying to put forth the idea of how complicated it is. It's not just that we're damaging it. It's not just that we love it and need it and are it quite literally. I think about how Rebecca Solnit talks about hope as a, an action that you're constantly choosing to hope. You're constantly choosing to, yeah. you know, to be engaged with hope. And I think about the beauty in my work in that way. I hope it can like call people in to think about these bigger ideas, but in a way where it's approachable because they have this, this beautiful thing that introduces the, the complicated concepts to them. And, and just to be clear to the audience, you know, a lot of your work is made specifically in areas that mm -hmm. are compromised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a really under interesting. Under threat, under siege. That's right. A really interesting place to work. One of my favorite places to work is the Great Salt Lake. And I mean, it's been in the news recently. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this yeah. have heard about the devastating, devastating risks that we're facing mm -hmm. as the water levels drop, that it, it's going to literally mm -hmm. create like poisonous clouds. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one fascinating thing about the Great Salt Lake is humans divided it into two discrete bodies of water with a railroad causeway. And what wound up happening with that division is different bacteria grew on each side of that. So we kind of turned one lake into two lakes. And the first time I printed there, it was also experiencing at the time record low levels, which have since been obliterated by new record lows. But also a couple months after I first printed there, there was a plan that they were going to cut holes in the causeway to let the water reconnect the two different discrete waters reconnect. And I just mm -hmm. kept thinking, like, we as humans do these kind of massive environmental interventions with, mm -hmm. with unknown consequences. And we just move forward mm -hmm. and maintain mm -hmm. hope that it's the right decision. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, what we were just talking about also really connects with your new work, ICE, which, because we're also dealing with the loss of the glaciers and, and the ice caps melting. And so, you know, once again, you're immersed in, you're immersed in a lot of ways, um, but immersed in that sort of preoccupation with environmental destruction and loss. And it's really an extraordinary uh, body of work. I want to congratulate you, number one, and also ask you a bit about the book. And I, I don't know if it's sold out yet. If it's not, it should be. Um, <laughs> but if it's not, I, people should really, it, it feels like 
it feels very special. It's just a spectacular object. You know, sometimes I'm loath to talk too much about something that our listeners don't have and they, they're not holding like I am in front of them. But but this book is, is so beautiful and people can can you know, at least find it online and, and connect a little bit with what we're going to talk about here a bit. But tell me about how you came up with this design. You you did this with Radius Books and, and with your gallery, Yosimilo, but it, it feels really uh, special. So well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's not sold out. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it is available online by the book. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So well, and let me let me ask you one. Sorry. Yeah, no, let, please. Let me ask you one last question to, mm-hmm. to, to tackle when you tell me about, you know, sort of the the unique properties of of your prints, and then how that translates to book form and how do you feel about that translation mm-hmm. cool that that's definitely part of the conversation around the book so i'm glad you asked that so yeah. uh first of all thank you for your support of the book um i'm happy with it and i'm so happy it's finally out there in the world um i think any- it's mesmerizing thank you I think anyone who made a book during peak pandemic can attest that it was a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is printed in Italy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at one point, yeah. you know, they ran out of paper and then they ran out of cardboard mm-hmm. boxes to ship books. Right. So everyone was mm-hmm. in this boat together. Supply chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my prints, as we talked about earlier, are oftentimes quite large and photographing them and getting them to fit in a book scale can be very difficult. It can be challenging to make them feel like they feel um, when you've reduced them to sort of like an eight by 10 reproduction. And Mm -hmm. with the literal drift and with the Ecotone works that were in my first monograph with Radius and Yossi, I I found that I could satisfactorily reproduce the images and that they they still had the sensibilities of the prints. I never expect that a book page is going to exactly look like an image, but it should feel like an image. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do that. And we did some things like we used gatefolds so an image could get quite large and we showed details, right? right? So if you could understand like this one little corner of this print has all of this going on. And that was very satisfying. With the ice work, they are so much about the details. And the more that I tried to print them at book scale, the less I felt convinced that that was the right route. And Mm -hmm. I always photograph my pieces as they're exposing out in the landscape. I'm really interested in in the ways that they go through different palette shifts and the way that salt forms and all of the things that happen. And so I, I had a slew of photographs of prints occurring in their earliest exposures. And mm-hmm. then I also always photographed details of my prints. And it occurred to me that I could take these images that I had been making in the ice work and think of them as kind of a raw material for the book pages. And so mm-hmm. we opted to not include a single full image in the whole book. It is a, a series of details of pictures from the <laughs> ice series. <laughs> mm-hmm. And some of them, 
you know, I photographed like the first hour that the piece was out in the environment and it doesn't look anything like that anymore. And then others are details of the, of the pieces once they are more stable and more static and living in the studio. But it, it felt like, um, I wanted the book to be a piece of art in its own right. And of course, something that's much more accessible for uh, most people as, as Mm -hmm. contrasted to trying to buy prints. And I also wanted the pages to open flat so that you could actually see what was going on in the gutter. And when mm-hmm. David Chickie and I were talking about design, we, I was going back and forth between hardcover and softcover. And we just kind of were like, well, we can do both. Actually, the back can be hardcover and the front can be softcover. And it can open kind of like the feeling of a portfolio. So there's this kind of like intimacy and like reveal the way you kind of open up an artist's portfolio and flip through their prints carefully. I love this description. And it's quite large. I I didn't, I haven't measured it. (laughs) So I don't know the actual trim (laughs) size, but it's what, probably like 12 by 18 or something like that? I think it's, I'm staring at a copy in front of me. I think it's around 11 by 15, 12 by 15, I think. Yeah. So it's a a big book. Mm -hmm. I love that I love everything you just said. It just totally tracks with the way I interact with it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a book you do just put down in front of you because it does lay flat and you can really fall in. I mean, it's so mesmerizing mm-hmm. and everything about it is so seductive. The paper is really, really feels wonderful and the colors and the reproductions are just exquisite and it's not full bleed. I just want to say thank God because I don't like full bleed. I'm really sorry, people, but I don't. Um, <laughs> but, but it's almost full bleed, mm-hmm. but there's just enough white to let each image. What I don't like about full bleed is if it's on my coffee table, mm-hmm. then there's no, all of a sudden my coffee table and the picture are becoming mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So just enough white space gives me that sort of, it's just, look, it's the way I see, it's the way I absorb information. Yeah, so I mean, it's quite literally a frame, anyway. right? It's just a small frame. Right, it's a frame, but it gives you that break. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I really love the design. David is just fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I, I work with Barbara Bosworth, represent oh, Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so he's done such an amazing job with, with Barbara's books. Oh, um, yeah, they, they make beautiful books. And um, you mentioned the pages you know, that the paper feels good. And one of the things that excited me about the way the ink went down on this paper is in some of the darker areas, you start to feel a slight tactility. If you run your hand over the print, there's kind of this slight grit that occurs. And Mm -hmm. I love that idea of incorporating something tactile into a primarily visual experience. And with the ice work, I wanted the cover to be like all white, but we decided to stamp in some shapes that I pulled from one of the ice prints. So they're actually like blind embossed into the the cover right. and the slipcase. And my hope was that when somebody picks up that book, their first experience of it will actually be 
a physical touch sensation. And then as they... That's exactly what happens. Right? And then as you tip it, you start to see it. And that's sort of how the ice work operates too. You kind of get this overall impression of a print in front of you. And then as you move your body toward it or away from it or different light hits it, these pretty beautiful details start to reveal themselves. So I wanted to kind of mimic that experience, but with like a multi-sensory approach. Well, I think you nailed it. You know, it's great to have such clarity about what you want and Mm -hmm. and really to have achieved it. I mean, often there's just so many hurdles and I'm sure there were a million and one hurdles to doing that, but you did it and it's really fantastic. Thank you. Well, why don't we uh, wrap up? This is this is a good place to to stop. I I, I really want to congratulate you. I've you know known your work for so I really since you came on the scene and I've watched your career really develop and get to where it is now. We're quite robust, you know. So really, congratulations on on all your success and and just on continuing to make such really beautiful work and and very moving work. So thank you. And I also just want to shout out to all of my collaborators from the water to my incredible galleries and the people that support me at institutions. It's fascinating. And I'm just living a dream life getting to make art all the time. Yeah, sometimes it's a nightmare being an artist. And sometimes, (laughs) sometimes you get the dream. That's right. um, But so that's nice of you to do that. You, I know you work with a lot of really wonderful people. Absolutely. And, and yeah. Okay, Megan. Well, be well. You and too. Thanks again. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I hope to meet you in person. For sure. Okay. Okay. Take take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that was so fun. Oh my gosh, that was so fun. Oh, hilarious. The mic's still going. Well, <laughs> that was super fun, y'all. <laughs> Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 